0: ears podcast
1: where we discuss anything and everything disney i'm angela and i'm joe and on today's episode we have our review with former disney animator tony bancroft this was a, a great interview tony went into a lot of detail about all the characters he created in his time at disney uh really insightful
0: yeah it was a fantastic interview that i can't wait for you guys to hear
1: yeah. And after the interview, we will be back with Disney news. But before we do get into the interview, I want to thank SCM 90 for their review on Apple Podcasts. They mentioned it. I'm pretty sure they're married. Question mark. Uh, I'm, I'm
0: pretty sure we're
1: married. Yes. Too? I, I'm going to say question mark confirmed. Yes. It is. Okay, good.
0: Yeah. I don't see a marriage license around here anywhere. Yes, in this so, office,
1: so, so, so good. guess. Um, We are married, but just want to thank them again for their review. Uh, They really enjoyed listening. And just want to remind everybody that if you do leave a review for our podcast on Apple Podcasts, we are running a giveaway right now through the next week, that if you take a screenshot of that review and post it on the post over on our Facebook page, Enchanted Ears, you have a chance to win a free pack of Expedition Roasters coffee and a Disney Tumblr. So SCM90 again, thank you for your review. Thank Thank you for listening. and. Without further ado, here's our interview with Tony. So we are delighted to be joined uh, this week on the show by Tony Bancroft. Tony has helped create and animate uh, many di- iconic Disney characters, including Pumbaa and Kronk. He was also the co director of the animated film Mulan. And he also co hosts the Bancroft Brothers animation podcast with his brother Tom, who's a guest on our show last year as well. So, Tony, uh, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show.
2: Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, you guys. Good to meet you, Joe and Angela. You got the fresh Bancroft. Tom was last year's meet. This year, <laughs> This year, fresh off the. Uh, I market. will say,
1: you know, we talked yeah. to Tom in 2020. That year did not go so well. <laughs> so. Right? So, uh, right? We'll it's
2: turn so it around in right. 2021.
0: 20 yeah. Hey, do you have another sibling just in case this one doesn't, you know? Yeah, we do. <laughs> an
2: older sister, and you'll get a totally different perspective on the world because uh, she hates Disney. No, are we talking about Disney tonight? Is that what it was? Really
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so I, I think we just wanted to, to start off, and we kind of asked Tom a, a similar question to start off, but what got you into animation in the first place? Kind of what inspired you to be an animator?
2: You know, it's, it, it's, it is a very unique thing to have two brothers that have the exact same interests, and uh, yes, we're twins. So I think that kind of helped our headspace was in the same place, and we're biologically the same person, you know, being a, a gene that split, or whatever it is chromosomes, we have similar DNA, DNA anyway, um, and, uh, and yeah, we, we just always have had uh, an interest in drawing, uh, that's what we were competitive with, was, was definitely drawing and doodling, and cartooning came into being very early on because of comic strips, we, had, we both had a love for uh, reading newspaper comic strips and seeing them as kids,
0: um, Charles Schultz uh, was, you know,
2: uh, you know, just an icon to me, and I just loved his work so much. Uh, Bill, you know, Bill Watterson, Calvin Hobbes, you name it, Farside, all that. Um, and it wasn't until, but animation came about for us more like when we were in high school and trying to kind of figure out what, what was next. We knew that if we did comic strip together, we had, had done plenty of research in that. And this is, you know, pre-internet, so you had to go to the library and check out books and, figure things out in the world, Um, but we had figured out that, you know, comic strips was just a matter of getting one sold to a syndicate, Um, and so school and college was never really mentioned in any of the interviews that we've seen with other comic strip artists, but my mom really wanted us to go to a a college, at least a city college or something for a little bit to kind of improve our skill sets, even if it was just going to be art, Um, and I love that about her because, you know, both Tom and I, we were never pushed into being attorneys or doctors or things like we would have have literally destroyed the world or somebody's (laughs) life if we had done that. Um, But instead, uh, we were storytellers, we loved characters, um, and that's what really um, led us into animation and, and the world of storytelling through characters.
0: So, you know, you guys pretty quickly, you know, you got out of college, immediately got hired by Disney, and you got an opportunity to just, like, just, I mean, you got thrown right in there. Bam, so yeah. who was the most influential animator that you had the opportunity to work under?
2: Oh, man, there were so many back then. This was the early 90s. And, and to back up a little bit, Tom and I ended up going to CalArts, California Studio Arts, which was like the number one school for animation. And all of our teachers worked at Disney in the studio. They're all from feature animation during the day. Mm-hmm. It was like Joe Rampt and Chris Buck, and Mike Giammo. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were all working there during the day, and then they would come and teach us at night. So we had this real, real time, very relative connection to Disney. Um, and at the time, there was no Pixar yet. There was only Don Bluth Studios. It was only Disney. There wasn't even a lot of TV animation going on outside of like Hanna Barbera and some of the bigger, older ones. So um, not a lot of options. But we did get hired into an internship that led to our first jobs at Disney. And um, I got hooked up really early on with um, my mentor became Will Finn. Will Finn was the supervising animator uh, um, uh, on uh, Frank the Neck Wizard on Rescuer's Down Ender. I worked with him on that. He did Yago on Aladdin. He did Cogsworth on Beauty and the Beast. Uh, And actually going back before that, he did Grimsby if you remember him from Little Mermaid. So he had these, he always did comedy roles. And I love that. I love the element of doing, and I wanted to be typecast as a comedy guy. That was my desire. A lot of people don't want to be typecast. They want to have freedom, creative freedom and all that. I'm like, no, I want to be the person that makes people laugh Mm -hmm. through the characters. I know the response, I know if my work happened, if it worked well and engaged people, if they laugh. You know, and Mm -hmm. to me, that was the ultimate response.
0: So, so you uh, you kind of jumped into this comedy thing here, and so what is the fav- your favorite animated comedy character that you didn't get a chance to work on?
2: Oh man, did get it. Well, I think the all time best comedy character was actually voiced by a stand up comic himself, Robin Williams, as the genie. Ah, would yes. Love to have done uh, the genie. I think a lot of people did. He was. You know, I remember when they were casting animators on that unit. Now, I was already with Will, and it was kind of a known thing. Oh, Tony's with Will, because he did Cogsworth with Will, and Will's going on and going to be doing his own character, Yago. So it was never really up for grabs for me. It was not an option, really. But once I started seeing the, the reels, the animatics, um, seeing some of the early animation by Eric Goldberg of The Genie, and hearing the, the vocal track from Ron Williams, I was like, ugh. It's 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 comedy. It's just pure comedy, and you know, pure joy to me. I love what Eric Goldberg did with him
0: Yeah, it, it is like it, incredible. And related to that, what's the key to making a comedic character resonate with an audience?
2: What's the key? Um, I mean, I I think there's we have to really consider ourselves as actors with a pencil back in those days, or actors with a mouse these days. Um, to be an animator you really do you have to understand performance and you have to be able to invest yourself into the characters and understand that you are half half of as much of the character as the voice actor at least so where where they they bring to life the vocal performance we bring to life the visual and they should work in, in you know in unison to create the full performance of the character and if you don't go into it with that kind of understanding and that kind of um, depth of understanding, I, I think you're going to fail at what you do, and you're not going to make the complete and real characters to
1: your audience. Nice. Yeah, and and you've kind of already mentioned a few of the characters you've worked on: Cogsworth, Iago. But you know, you were there at Disney in the '90s, kind of the the resurgence of animation with Disney. I, I think I count kind of, you've worked on five of the Disney Renaissance movies, five of the ten. Yeah. Um, what was it like? being at Disney at that time I mean was there was there kind of this idea that you were in this magical time or was it just kind of like we're making one movie after another we hope it does well
2: it really was the latter I guess you know when you're in a situation like that like did George Lucas know that when he was making Star Wars that he was changing history no Mm no you know and we hear stories I love hearing stories about some of the visual effects artists that worked on Star Wars and were like you know, we didn't think we were going to finish. It was so far behind, and there was actually people that quit because they didn't want to get blamed for this awful movie that went over budget and over time, or it didn't come out at all. Um, you know, and they would have missed out on being a part of history. Um, we didn't know. You hardly ever know you're making history when you are. You really, you really don't. And you don't. It's and it goes. This and this is going to sound. Maybe a little trivial or something, but it goes even deeper into. I think as humans, we don't know how much we touch other people through our lives. Um, it's, it feels like it's a wonderful life now, um, <laughs> you know, um, until many years later, oftentimes. And that's kind of what this—the surreal experience of working at Disney in the '90s was for a lot of us—was that feeling of this seems special. I like what we're doing. But it still feels like we're just doing this for ourselves. It almost felt like a little little band that you were doing in your garage. I've heard the Beatles talk about the same kind of thing, you know, when they first yeah. started. It was just like, we were just four mates and we liked to play music. It was lovely. You know? And uh, it, it really was that for us, I would say.
1: But did you start to get the sense, though, I mean... Beauty and the Beast was huge. It was nominated for an Oscar. The Lion King was like the biggest movie of all time up to that point. <laughs> I mean, I mean, once you got through a few of those, did you start getting that feeling though that, that yeah, we are getting into something special. This is resonating with people.
2: Yeah. When Lion King, I mean, each one started building off each other. You're right. And I remember on Beauty and the Beast when we got nominated for Best Picture, not Best Animated Picture, Best Picture. It was the first time an animated film was ever nominated in that category for the Academy. And it was also the reason they started the Best Animation uh, category later on. Um, But there was a lot of people that were upset. You know, oh, it doesn't have real actors in it. There was a lot of that kind of stuff in the press. Mm -hmm. But just to be part, I never fathomed that, that being in animation, even at Disney, that we would ever be up for an Oscar or something like that. To me, that was like a whole new level. So that was just definitely a level change that first Mm -hmm. thing. But when Lion King came out and broke a hundred million dollars in its first weekend in the box office, which had never been done before by a live action movie or an animated picture. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, we knew it. We knew we had struck gold and, and, you know, and each one led to that. So we saw with, from, you know, I, I would say it started with like Little Mermaid, really who frame Roger Rabbit, but then you know, some people say that's not really all animated, but certainly Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, you know, and there was just like Rescuers Down Under, people just pulled that out, they just removed that. But right. but if you go, you know, you know, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, those kind of film, those that as a series, each one made more money in the box office, each one had more and more accolades and awards. So we definitely started getting big heads. I I would say <laughs> after Lion King it was probably the success was the greatest thing and probably the worst thing for animation.
1: That was going to be my next question is once you start realizing that success does that amp up the pressure to the point that you you know I think yeah. you hear you hear of creative people say like when you're just kind of loose, you know, almost like Pixar in the early days, like they had nothing to lose. And so they, they kind of took the time to make the stories they wanted to make. But when that success and pressure mounts, does that make it harder to be creative and, and to be successful?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a known thing in our industry, for sure, that, um, you know, that uh, yes, success breeds opportunity, but it also um, breeds over-scrutiny and more cooks in the kitchen and more people wanted to be a part of it and more people giving their opinions about what makes it popular or successful. And they're going to tell you. Um, and that really was, I think the, a big undoing, you stir in the fact that CG animation came about right around that same time as, as, uh, we were struggling in 2d animation. And it was the perfect storm of huge success followed by, you know, dismal failure.
0: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, So you mentioned The Lion King there, which I think our listeners know that that's like one of my absolute favorite films. So you were the uh, supervising animator on Pumbaa. And I was wondering, you know, is the relationship between Timon and Pumbaa based off of anything or anyone in real life?
2: Well, they you know, uh, it's funny you ask that because I mean, I've been asked that question a lot. I remember on Lion King when reporters and stuff would ask us that. And there really are two great models actually on the film for that. And that is Nathan Lane and Ernie Sabella are true friends. And they were true <laughs> friends. They, Ernie got on the movie because of his buddy Nathan. So Nathan is the voice of Timon and Ernie Sabella is mm-hmm. the voice of Timon. And they did their tryout together because Nathan, they were playing together on Broadway. They did a lot of Broadway shows together. That's where they came from. And um, Nathan was the one that was more popular. And he was the one that was asked to mm-hmm. come. Interviewed for um, at the time they interviewed for hyenas, not for Timon and at all. <laughs> they had other people in mind for those characters, but but Nathan brought his buddy Ernie and they um, started playing in front of the microphone and ad libbing, and the directors thought it was hilarious, and they they <laughs> created the characters of Pumbaa and Timon better than the story the the scriptwriters did in that moment in in their um, tryout. And they both got the job. They both got the job, and they were. And, but it wasn't for hyenas. They, the directors decided, this is our Puma and Timon, and uh, yes. yeah, it happened like that.
0: And you said there was there were two things. So what? Yeah, there's the two, and,
2: and then the other one is is myself and uh, Mike Suri, who uh, anim- respectively animated Puma and Timon. Um, so I did Puma, and Mike was my buddy that made Timon. We were already buddies. We were very close friends. And so to get these two very close friends in the movie, it felt like it felt like kind of a Frank and Ollie thing. Where uh, if you guys know the Nine, Nine Old Men of animation, Frank and Ollie were good buddies. They were like lived right next to each other, and you know had a very similar lives. So they were both successful animators, but they did a lot of characters together. Like Frank would do, you know, um, Captain Hook and uh, Peter Pan, and Ollie did Smee. So they did this <laughs> like they did the back and forth characters a lot and um that was mike and i and certainly on lion king we got that opportunity to we shared an office together we because we were first time supervised animators they gave us the opportunity of the supervising animator usually means like okay you're, you're a big wig on the film and you're gonna get your own office and you got you know
0: like <laughs> animators
2: underneath you and it, it is a big kind of like level thing level up kind of moment but they offered us to have our own our own offices but we said no we want to share we want to put us in one room together because we want that camaraderie want and we did we would have like late nights where we're listening to And that's been a lot of show tunes, believe it or not. Uh, But that was (laughs) the time. Uh, Like, Les Miserables, I remember playing, like, and both of us just singing at the top of our lungs while we are animating right next to each other. Our desks were almost touching, you know, while we are animating. Oftentimes on the same scene, he would be, I would be doing Pumbaa, and he'd be doing Timon, who's on top of Pumbaa's head, in the same (laughs) shot, at the same time. And we were just choreographing the animation back and forth. And that's what we wanted, was to have that kind of close knit uh relationship but also that that space that we're in so we can easily just go hey mike uh you know i'm over here and working on the same shot number 57 and i got Pumba doing this and this you know it, 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 will that work with what, what you have planned for timon oh yeah, yeah yeah okay or he'll come over and he'll do a drawing of timon on top of Puma and say i'm probably going to put him right here so we had a lot of back and forth in our planning because of the choreography between the two characters and sharing an office and having that relationship it made
1: those characters just like bernie and Nathan made those characters come to with their voices. Wow <laughs> how how much leeway as supervising animator, even as the animator, maybe less so. But but how much leeway do you have in the mannerisms of of the characters and kind of the actions they take place? Is that all kind of coming from the director? Hey, this is what we need the scene to be, or or do you have kind of your, some control over over what the characters can do?
2: Uh, we have a lot of control, um, but there are certain. There's definitely a wheelhouse we're working in. We, you know, we understand that the characters are working in a certain space. Mm-hmm. Which in live action would be a set, right? Um, and so we don't have any choice over that. Um, they have certain lines and certain poses or certain thoughts that they're emitting that are story driven because of the script or the recordings that have already been done, or the um, or the storyboards that have been drawn, and those those give us suggestions. But outside of those things and discussions with the, the director, we have a lot of leeway. We have a lot of leeway to improvise a little bit here and there with poses, with gestures, with expressions. You can, it's amazing in 2D animation and CG animation. What you can do in manipulating the subtext of a, of a line just by changing the expression, it changes mm-hmm. the direction that the audience sees that the character is feeling or not feeling, um, I just, you know, you can make somebody sound like they're really mad, but they're really smiling the whole time. If I, you know, if my eyebrows were down, I would look really constipated or, or concerned, but, I, but if my eyebrows are up and I'm smiling while I'm saying it, it really changes the outcome, doesn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, for
2: podcast, so for the podcast, for listeners at home, Tony was doing changes in expression. While I was going to <laughs> say, we we got a great yeah, performance. Yeah, we did. We did.
0: <laughs> You know, it definitely shows that you're you're also an actor a little bit there. <laughs> I know that for part of your research, you know, you, the internet wasn't really uh, as, as big of a thing as it is now, so you had to open a lot of books and learn, like, anatomy and of, like, warthogs. What other kind of cool research did you get a chance to do when creating the well, character of Poopa? I mean, it was
2: pretty incredible. There's, you know, you guys might have seen it when you were little kids, but um, on the, the beginning vhs tape for aladdin when that first went to vhs there was like a little preview on the beginning that about lion king it was kind of a behind the scenes thing about lion king and you'll see animators drawing a real life lion right um Mm -hmm. in the studio that really happened and that was all that was real i was in the front row literally (laughs) it was the craziest thing so they brought in live live animals they were all like show animals right they were the they were the actors on Gentle Ben and uh, whatever shows like that that had you know animal okay. stars in it. So okay. yeah. and they were especially trained and all that. These were not like wild animals or zoo animals; <laughs> they were studio animals. And um, so they came in with trainers, and we were told when we first got there there was like these drawing little oops, drawing little seats and that sort of thing. We had sketch pads, um, and they had there's a big stripe uh, right in front of our drawing uh, seating area big red line or tape that they had put down and they said please don't you know the trainer was like please don't go past this red line and we're like wow well, why what's i mean what if we wanted to get a little closer look or what, what would happen and it's like well lions have a radius of about five to seven feet where uh if you come into their space just instinctually they may gut you <laughs> You know, they, they may literally eat you or um or or at least uh you know attack you so um try and stay behind and we're like yeah okay we'll stay behind the line yeah so um you know we're pathetic uh non-athletic uh, don't run very fast animators so we're like yes sir we'll stay behind the line and um but it it was so cold and then in that session um And they had an animal authority that was there, and he would talk about behaviors and anatomy and things like that. While we were sketching away, they would tell us about this. We went to San Diego Wild Animal Park, and we got VIP behind-the-scenes exposure to the animals and drawing and lectures. We had um, Stuart Sumita, who was our our local—I think he was from UCLA or USC— he was a professor in animal behavior and anatomy. He would come in and do talks. He, would, he was actually on the film, like, um, I think in the pre-production phase, he was on an 100% full-time hire, so that any time, if we had, an, uh, you know, uh, a question, we could go to Stuart. He did lectures. we You know, I had a, a taxidermy warthog head that was right above my desk for the whole time I was animating. There was... All that is examples of... It was very extensive, the uh, the kind of in-depth research we did in Lion King.
1: Was there any other animals considered for Pumbaa besides a warthog, or was he a warthog from day one?
2: That's a good question. Um, that's a little bit before my time on the film. I know that they had talked about different combos of Pumbaa and Timon being different animals. I think there was some, but... I want to say that timon i think the warthog was always the warthog but timon might have been other animals instead of a meerkat i not there
0: there is in real life um warthogs and i think it's mongoose have like a, a relationship uh-huh. like a real life uh mutualistic relationship so yeah. i don't know maybe if that was it but
2: yeah like that could be and i think as oftentimes, sometimes change, you know uh, these kind of decisions are made by the directors or whatever, just because they see a meerkat and he's so cute and charming, or yeah. <laughs> he's one of the most popular little animals at the zoo, and mm-hmm. they're like, "Oh, we got to get that in there," you know. Um, and some of it doesn't always make sense to what actually happens in you know in nature.
1: And then when you're animating, are, do they have the dialogue recorded, or are you animating it before you even know what they're going to say?
2: Yeah, all the dialogue is recorded beforehand. So okay. the script comes first and um and then it's storyboarded. So there's a visual kind of diagram or blueprint of the whole movie in, in storyboards. Then they bring in the actors, they record the actors, and then the animators come in and they bring it to life with twenty-four frames a second, twenty-four drawings in one film a second. Wow.
1: wow. And uh and, and Tom mentioned this um when we talked to him because he uh, was the animator for Young Simba. And he talked about how he was in Florida, you were in California, and you would have to <laughs> physically mail the I images um, about that. back and forth.
0: So, and <laughs> but, I think he said yeah. one time they got lost even. He said, yeah, yours weren't lost, but some other animators did get lost.
2: Yeah, yeah, there, yeah, it was literally, and this was pre-FedEx, I think, I want to say. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of, um, we had to rely on silly things that are now outdated, like VHS tapes being sent in the mail, uh, you know, scenes and drawings being yeah sent back and forth through shipping companies. We had the first um, kind of uh, online teleconference system, like Zoom, basically. Um, okay. mm-hmm. it, was, it was designed, we were like one of the first studios to ever have that, and so that we could communicate oh, cool. from Florida to California by just walking into this room where there was like a video system set up and it was 100% online. It was like a satellite. Uh, somebody told me it was like ten thousand dollars a minute or something. Too to <laughs> wow. for Disney to have that, just so we could kind of walk in and feel like we're connected with two studios, um, you know. Uh, but yeah, those uh, you know fax machines were used uh, on the making of this film. We were faxing drawings to each other. It was crazy when you think about it now, but because it was very difficult during that time. It's so easy now. So easy mm-hmm. now. But very difficult at that.
1: Yeah. Time. I could just imagine the difficulty and then I, I couldn't even imagine a studio now just in the way they want to lock down plot points and spoilers and just the lengths they go through oh, yeah, to keep me as if you could imagine, Hey, we're just going to send you this DVD in the mail of, of the dailies. It's like, no, we, we can't let anybody have that. Yeah. So. V- VHS of
2: the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. 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 Even we, before we DVDs, so. DVD. right. But, right. But certainly, yeah. It, when you think about it from a, it was a different time. I mean, um, First of all, the the Disney popularity was not at that at the range that it is now, where and where people want to know, you know, uh, spoilers or they want to hear, you know, behind the scenes exclusive details. Yeah. People just didn't care. They they're just there. There was it was just coming into being where people were like, oh, maybe a career in animation is you know a doable thing, or maybe I should mm-hmm. pursue that. But the popularity level was more about. The final releases, and uh, it hadn't gotten behind the scenes yet. Like, I, you know, people didn't know who we were, you know, as animators and directors and stuff like that, until after Lion King. I would say things changed more after that.
0: Wow. Okay, so moving on to Mulan, uh, you became one of the youngest directors in Disney history at the age of 26 years old, which is crazy. What would you say was the biggest advantage of being put into that role at such a young age and the biggest disadvantage?
2: Well, I mean, like any, the biggest advantage is definitely like anybody that gets thrown into something that they're not prepared for is that ignorance is bliss kind of thing that happens. And I had a lot of that. There was just, I, you know, I just had that young ignorance of, yeah, sure. I can do this. And <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to make a big influence on this film. And, you know, just kind of going around it with this cocky confidence that only comes from stupidity, I think, and <laughs> youth, youth and stupidity. Um, and I had a lot of that. So, uh, that was definitely the the pro, and and then the con to it, of course, is that I really, I really thought that with uh, in my youth, I used to think that if if Disney called me, gave me the title of director, that I would get the respect of a director immediately with that title. And I learned very quickly that uh, respect is earned and not given. Um, so. I had to. It was a roller coaster ride for me. Uh, that's the short story. Is that I had some days where I just felt horrible, like I wasn't even portrayed. I was just a, a blocking the way of progress on this movie by my idiocy or not making the right choices. And then days where I just felt like I'm in the middle of this movie and it's wonderful, and I feel energetic, and I feel creative, and I'm, I'm spawning change, and, and, and you know, and encouraging others to do their best work, and it was like that every other
0: day. It seemed like you know, I I loved that movie growing up, and I was I was wondering. It was funny because we had I hadn't watched it since maybe high school, mm-hmm. and we just recently rewatched it. And whenever I we saw it, I was like, all of the emotions that I I felt when I first watched the movie when I was a kid completely stirred up again because I forgot at how influential and important it was to me to see a female in such a strong leading role like Juan. Yeah. Yeah. So I really appreciate what you did That's
2: with cool. that. Wow. I, I appreciate you saying that, Angela. I mean, we, we, you know, we talked earlier about, were you conscious about certain things happening while they were happening? Were you, you know, <laughs> in the moment? Um, and that was one thing that, um, you know, to white guy, male directors doing a a film about an animated Chinese girl that you couldn't help, but kind of stop and think about for a moment of like, this is a unique opportunity and we're doing something that hasn't been done before. And yeah, in today's perspective, we probably should not have been doing uh, been in leadership (laughs) positions on that film. Um, But I'm so thankful that it was a different time that we were given that opportunity because, Barry Cook and I, the us co-directors, um, we really invested ourselves. We fell in love with Mulan, uh, and she became like a daughter figure in our minds, and we wanted the best for her. We wanted to put her out into the world and give her a unique perspective that she could do anything. She could be anything she wanted to be, even in this ancient Chinese world that she was a part of, that we wanted to showcase a character that was strong, and that, um, and that didn't need a man to save her. You know, didn't need a prince charming to come along to save her. It was more about that she really could do anything she put her mind to. And that's something that both Barry and I have daughters. I have three daughters, um, and, and I had um, my second daughter uh, came about during Mulan. My first one was on Lion King, and uh, as a father, that was very important to me personally. Mm-hmm. I wanted to instill in I wanted to create a Disney heroine that was no, not like any other one, and uh, that my kids could uh, grow up with, just like you, Angela, where they were encouraged by this strong character.
0: Right. I, I don't even know if they've, I don't know if they've ever had one even since that's been as successful yeah. at doing that because, you know, she she fits into this character of you don't have to be beautiful, you don't have to be graceful, you don't have to be all these things that your family wants to be, you can just be yourself. And yeah, that it's, it's incredible.
2: Yeah. We kind of, I think we're a little ahead of our time in some ways. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that because we thought we were at the time. I think we wanted what we wanted for the story and for the, and creating Mulan as a heroine, but um, you know, time has really played out a different story with Mulan. And I think she's more beloved now than she was at the time Mm -hmm. because the culture is caught up to her and to what the story is about. And uh, it's more resonant now.
1: Yeah. And, and can you talk a little bit about, I think you mentioned a little bit that, that transition was tough, becoming a director, earning the respect, but, you know, as a director versus just being an animator on a movie, what, you know, how much control do you have? What are you, what's, what are you kind of working on? Are you the one really, like you said, out there storyboarding, working on the script or how, how does that work?
2: I mean, Disney, particularly in the 90s, um, was uh, very much of a machine in that they had making these films down to almost a science, but fortunately and unfortunately, it was always about the schedule drove kind of where our headspace was at any, any particular time, so any day of the week, Barry Cook and I are involved with every aspect of making the film, from reviewing character designs to, you know, casting new voices, recording voices to working with the script writers on the script to starting to have later on, you know, uh, looking at color or, or cho- choosing color models for the, the outfits and, and how many outfits that she should have in the movie. And really every aspect that a live action director uh, is involved with, we were involved with also. Um, and there was sometimes my speciality was animation. I came from two D animation, like I said, and, you know, mm-hmm. and all these other characters, Pumbaa, um, so I loved animation, so I, I did animate a couple scenes. You have so many meetings, you can't really invest yourself in any one space very often as a director, you're you're always being pulled away, I mean literally every 15 minutes we had something else that we had to go on to and look at or see, or, and it was driven by that schedule. But. Sometimes I would just say, I, I just need an hour at three o'clock every day. Can you just give me that on the schedule or twice a week or something so I can do some animation on this film? Because I wanted to feel like, the, the weird thing is that I was, as a director, you're, you're overseeing this whole thing and you're the top artistic person on it, and yet you also feel like, do I really contribute anything specific? What what can I point at that is like mine in this film? You know, because it's like you're you're kind of, uh, yeah, I talked about this with this person and I you know, we came up with this idea over here as a group and we did, you know but for me, it was like, I I just want to animate some of the scenes so there's four shots in Mulan that I I animated myself. What What? are those four shots? (laughs) Now I
0: need to know. (laughs) that's it
2: <laughs> no um I, I you know i love comedy so they're all comedy scenes um i did one shot of the matchmaker when um when cricky the the little cricket goes down no not that one where he spreads, uh, spreads the ink on her face but it's the one where cricket goes down her, her chest and then she's like oh, oh, oh. Um, and then she falls backwards into the fire i did that scene of her and then I did a scene of Mushu that I stole from my brother Uh, (laughs) that's when um, he's arguing with the the main ancestor and the main ancestor sort of throws him out go and you know protect uh you know our family's honor and he goes screech 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 out the door and falls off and then he pops his head and he says so you get back to me on that job thing right and (laughs) the gong gets thrown in his face and he falls I like the Panama. (laughs) I like the physical comedy. So I got that one and did that. And then there was a a Cricky shot, a real short one, when Mulan is at the fire and she's, uh, you know, after the avalanche and she's been left by her troops. uh, And um, they didn't kill her, but they left her alone. And she's with Mushu and he's frying a dumpling. And there's a little shot of Cricky looking up at her, kind of sad as she's like, as she's lamenting, like, what was it all for? Did I did I really go for my father or was this about me and you know she has that moment of self-realization and there's a little cricky moment in there that I animated mm-hmm. um, and then lastly at the end of the film when um, uh, the emperor and uh, all of China is bowing to Mulan at the emperor's palace uh, there's a shot of Chifu where he realizes <laughs> and, and he throws himself down and bows to her too because he realizes he's the last one to do it after the yes. emperor does, um, and I do that one of the of Chifu. So yeah, it's my four
1: shots. That's great, and uh, and Tom was the supervising animator on Mushu. So what was it like having to d- to direct your brother?
2: <laughs> you know, um, I always tell people I, re- I have a great respect for my brother, and I will tell this to his face, maybe one day. But I tell other people <laughs> I have a great respect for my brother because he, I feel like the onus was on his shoulders to. Um, Deal with the fact that we were brothers, and uh, that he was under, and that I was his boss. That I was his brother and his boss. And because I would change, I would say there was there was many times that I you know because of the stresses of meetings and uh, and the headaches of all this you know pressure from working on the film. Uh, oftentimes, I would get my lunch hour to myself, but it would be lonely, and I'd be like. I'd call my brother and we'd end up having lunch all the time or watching a movie or some silly VHS thing or, or just Googling people on the internet or doing something stupid or walking around the park. You know, we worked at the Disney and Jim studios. We'd go on a park walk together and just talk. And um, that's when I was our bro time, right? So every lunch was our bro time. But then I'd come out of that lunch and I'd have a meeting with him as his director going over his animation. And he had to make that, I can make that transition very quickly and he had to kind of keep up with that. Okay, now this is not Tony, my Bozo brother, telling me this. This is Tony, my director, telling me this. Um, so he had to. I, I made that transition just out of work and you know just being focused on the job. And he had to make that transition so that he wasn't disrespectful to me in meetings or mm-hmm. you know laughing at me or being silly. Um, he knew that he could only do that when we were alone during our lunch hour together and having a meal and stuff and chatting or, or hanging out on the weekends like we did oftentimes. So it, it was kind of difficult here and there. There was some sensitive times, but I think it was, you know, me um, loving my brother. There was also this sense of we're twins. And if, if, if I felt like I could have animated, I would have wanted, if I was in, in his place and, and and I didn't have a twin brother, I would have wanted to animate Mushu. That would have been the character that I would have wanted to do. And I okay. felt like, I felt strongly that Tom ha- was as skilled, if not more skilled than I was. So if I think I could do it, I knew that he could do it. And that comes, I, I didn't have that confidence with any other animator on the film. That only comes from you know, an intimate knowledge of not only that other person, your brother, but also your twin. And I think that's what made I was easily his cheerleader and also easily his biggest judger, I think, of pushing him to do his best because I knew what his best could be the potential.
1: Yeah, Mushu is, I think, one of the (laughs) <laughs> most beloved you know one of the beloved characters i think we talked about comedy characters you mentioned genie i think mushu's up there as well yeah kind of with eddie murphy voicing him yeah were there any interesting um people almost cast uh for voices that that maybe didn't make the cut or any kind of behind the scenes facts things that that maybe didn't make it to the movie
2: yeah we were looking at um was it joe pesci yeah joe pesci for mushu we after Lion King came out and Timon and Pumbaa were so popular, particularly Timon and that kind of streetwise kind of feel. And I think at that point, Billy Crystal had done a voice. For, we looked at Billy Crystal, I think was in the, in the running. So, so Timon at first was, or sorry, Mushu. Huh. Mushu at first was, um, we were looking at like kind of a streetwise New Yorker kind of white guy thing, um, to go mm-hmm. along with Pumbaa. Much like because of, because of Timon and right? it was very much in, influenced by that. And it wasn't until, so we looked at Joe Pesci, we looked at Billy Crystal, we looked at, um, a lot of that type, I guess you could say. Um, and it wasn't until Michael Eisner said, how about Eddie Murphy? When we were talking about casting one time, you know, now Michael Eisner, um, he knew that he could get Eddie Murphy at this point. Eddie Murphy had done, he was a huge popular big star because of, um, Axel Foley from uh, where he's a cop and stuff.
1: Was um, it Beverly Hills Cop?
2: Yeah, sorry. Beverly Hills Cop. Okay. Right. He was huge star because of Beverly Hills Cop. But Michael Eisner helped him to become that. He That was a Paramount Pictures film. He cast okay. yeah. Eddie Murphy. He had the confidence. He kind of helped him make the transition from Saturday Night Live into movies. So He knew that Eddie kind of Odin him one, and he called in that favor from Mulan. He called him up directly and said, uh, we're not going to audition you. I want you to do this character in Mulan. And so we listened to tape. Uh, Tom actually did an animation test with Eddie Murphy early on because we wanted to be confident ourselves. Like, okay, mm-hmm. how is yeah. this going to work? This, you know, uh, African-American, street-smart kind of wacky character against, you know, traditional China values in, in Mulan and you know, quiet and loud, and but we ultimately thought, you know, what better contrast? You know, we wanted the most possible contrast between who Mulan was and who Mushu was, and Eddie, Eddie Murphy really delivered that for us.
0: I definitely say so. Yeah. So, who was the most challenging character that you've ever had to, you know, draw or design?
2: Um, probably Kronk. Yeah, I mean, okay. After Mulan, I went back into animation because I was really jonesing for anime, and I really missed drawing and just kind of shutting the door and not going to different meetings and stuff, and just doing my own personal work. And so um, I got the opportunity to work on Kronk, a brand-new character in what was then called um, Kingdom of the Sun, which was changing into Emperor's New Groove. Some of you guys might know that story, but it went through a huge transitional shift in the story. And they introduced this new funny character, Kronk, um, and, uh, Patrick Warburton was already cast on it. Um, the directors, had, the director and producer had seen him as Putty and Seinfeld and fell in love with Patrick Warburton from that, uh, that character and Seinfeld that he played for a little bit. Um, and, uh, and cast him. So when I came onto it, it was already a year, year and a half, you know, I, I was working on Milan while they were working on early, uh, Kingdom of the Sun it wasn't going well. I kept hearing about this film that wasn't going well and they made story changes and then they ultimately fired one of the directors and promoted a co-director to be the director and now it's a comedy where it used to be. It was like everything <laughs> that could change seemed to change on this thing. Um, and so when I came off of Mulan and said I wanted to go back in animation... So, um, they said, well, there's treasure planet over here and you can do this character morph or there's, you know, cause I was a comedy guy. So they're mm-hmm. offering me yeah. comedy characters or you can go on to Kronk, which is this new kind of breakout character in, in the new version of Emperor's new group. Um, and once I listened to the voice and heard some of the recordings by Patrick Warburton, I said, that's the one. I mean, I, I gotta do mm-hmm. that. It's Patrick such Wolverine. an iconic voice so yeah he does. Good. yeah so yeah. good he was a scene stiller i love that about him he was the perfect comic foil i think for yzma i there was just so much but i was nervous because i hadn't animated Mulan to you know three years of my life and i wasn't animating very much even though i did those four shots that we talked about um so i was pretty rusty and then on top of it Kronk's a human. He's my first human animate. I've done a, <laughs> I've done everything else. Yeah. I've done a, a parrot, and I've done a, a warthog, and I've done a clock, and you know, a mm-hmm. lizard, and rescuers down under, Frank the Phil neck lizard. I've done everything but a human, and now I got hands to deal with. So oh, um, I had to up my game, and, and it was very stylized too. So you know, getting to understand the the graphic quality of you know, even turning his nose. It's basically this bar shape, and um mm-hmm. with like a toothbrush most of the time it was <laughs> it was kind of it was tricky and um but i was up for the challenge and i really enjoyed it it was it was a great transition back into animation working on that
0: film i was gonna say that that's Go that ahead. movie I, yeah that movie definitely shines out of the early 2000s right? from disney i that and actually treasure planet i also i that's an underappreciated one i when I yeah. watched it, I was like, why, why is this not more popular than it is? But yeah. It... Well, and I
2: think, and it's funny how both of those really did pretty poorly when they came out. They were part mm-hmm. of the, the conclusion of 2D animation at Disney, um, or at least the downfall. and um, And yet, Today, I think they're they're more popular than ever. Both those films, mm-hmm. Emperor's New Group, hands down, probably has the most memes of any Disney feature out there. <laughs> I was to say, I that's, see Kronk
1: yeah. memes all the time. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah that you one, do. that one, and the one with um, with um, Kuzco as the as the llama crying in the rain. I feel like that's... Yeah,
2: I mean, I'm I'm just wearing a shirt right now that's
0: <laughs> yes. pull the lever. Yep. Yes, it's perfect. Pull the lever, cron. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah and that that actually kind of leads into um a question I was going to ask because I do see a lot of memes of of cronk pull the lever wrong lever or people saying I wish they built a ride like this in Disney World oh, where you pull that the would lever. that is so perfect. And and so one of the things that got me thinking is you know as an animator you're creating these characters and then Disney turns them into merchandise they turn them into rides into yeah. you know attractions what's it like for you going to Disney World going to <laughs> Disneyland and and seeing characters you created, kind of out there,
2: it it's surreal, but it's also um, kind of detaching. I had to early on. I had to learn that that once we finished what we felt was our like our family little film, our little our little you know done in the backyard or in the garage kind of film, because it was very personal as we worked on it as a team together. Once we finished that film, it was going to go off and become this other thing, which was. A corporate product, <laughs> and, and yeah, I had to learn that difference early on. That this is we did this thing, now they're doing this other thing over here, and and and, and oftentimes they just didn't really meet up, and it was frustrating. Sometimes I would say because I like I never liked uh, you know the early drawings on Beauty and the Beast on any of the merchandise or things like that. I always I said why don't they have the animators? go over those they could pay them extra the animators would love to do that and have that opportunity they know how to draw the characters better uh and liking we did get that opportunity thanks to the producer a little bit the supervising animators spent some time and we went over all the posts that now you see on t-shirts and uh, i literally can point at you know caps and t-shirts and beach towels and say that's my drawing of Pumbaa." you know um but all the other films they were all somebody else and just went in different directions and then there's the sequels is the tv shows i mean and everybody always asks me about that other ancillary stuff like were you playing that i'm like no i i really i take no only the original film it's only the original film for me
0: i had to restrain myself from asking you about lion king one and a half
2: yeah please thank you (laughs) Please, please (laughs) thank you angela um you are welcome that's a different podcast
0: yes yes
1: yeah, who is, uh, who's been your favorite character that you've drawn?
2: Um I mean it's probably it's probably Pumba. I would say, you know, I really enjoyed Kronk, but I mean let's face it, it, for me it started with Pumba as being my first time supervised animator. Um, Lion King was such a memorable thing, sharing that experience with my best friend, mm-hmm. Mike Surrey. It it all adds up to that was the best time. That was the best time of my career.
1: Yeah. And and I'd have to imagine, I mean, just listening to your story of of how you guys work together, it makes sense that it's more than just the drawing of it. It's kind of that history behind it. You know, like we just see it on film and kind of that final product, Mm -hmm. but there's so much that goes behind it. And and it was really interesting to hear that and just to kind of learn that next time I watch the movie, I'm going to kind of see it in a different light.
2: Well, I don't don't really watch the movies. Like, you know, I'm not that fan. I don't don't see the movie the same way that you guys would as fans. And Mm -hmm, so I've always told my kids that for me watching the movies, one, it's difficult because there's always elements of, you know, they weren't all good times. And uh, Mm -hmm. working on those films, there was conflict, there was arguments you'd have or this and that. Um, And so all those emotions come up when I watch these movies that I worked on. They're more like yearbooks, like high school yearbooks. Where you're like <laughs> shots are going by and you're like, oh, I remember that shot. I remember working on that shot. I remember, oh, that was actually oh oh that scene from Aladdin with Iago, that was when the riots broke out in, you know, in LA and we had to leave and go home and it was a scary time. They thought those studio was gonna burn down. That's what I was doing on that scene. I finished it at home on my desk because we were forced out of the studio because of the LA riots. You know, and wow. so it That's literally amazing. is I can't watch it without thinking about those things or maybe an argument with the director. And it still kind of irks me, you know, that he didn't let me do this or that or, you know, <laughs> or 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 the positive side, which is, oh, my gosh, that was so much fun. I did that scene and it went, went through. I didn't get, you know, land based by the directors. I got a crew the first time out, and I just connected with it. It was like flying, you know. So yeah. there, all those emotions are there.
1: Yeah, that that's a fascinating insight uh, of your point. I mean, it's it's you almost see it as yeah. a Yearbook's a great example. It's kind of a, a snapshot in history, and I can imagine if yeah something very you know, momentous happened at the same time you're drawing that, that it's just, you're going to kind of relive that. So I mean, you yeah. know, that's like, yeah.
2: it's like the old thing when people ask you, where were you when JFK died or Elvis mm-hmm. died, or maybe for you guys, David Bowie died or Prince died. And you know, those are trigger or, or 9-11, I guess is the mm-hmm. best, best one mm-hmm. that we all connect with. Right. Where were you when 9-11 happened? You will always remember that because mm-hmm. it was such a triggering major event in your life. And for me, these films have become that, and it, and it's how I, it's how I gauge the age of my daughters. You know, I talk about she was my Lion King baby, or this is my Mulan baby, and all of a sudden I know what year they were born because of that. Wow, um, it's sad, and yeah, pathetic. it's really what we're saying. <laughs> no, no, not <laughs> it's at not,
0: all. It's not at all. Speaking of you know sentiment, what is the most sentimental thing that you were able to grab from Disney before you left?
2: You know, oh, your brother has this chair? big
0: <laughs> your chair. No. Um, he has uh, that big uh, drawing from everybody from Mulan. I think. Oh it my was. gosh,
2: he's got the best! <laughs> I'm telling you right now, if some somebody needs to, I don't know, monetize this or put a price on it or something, he probably has the best drawing from Mulan that uh, mm-hmm. nobody's ever seen. Yeah. And it's the one that yep. you're describing because he got every single yep. supervised animator to contribute a drawing mm-hmm. on one big, mm-hmm. long, one piece of paper. Um, and I've never seen anything like that since then or before then. So uh, that is very unique. Um, I wish I could say I have something that unique. Um, but I'm, I'm looking at it up here. You can't see it off my camera. But I do have a, a Mulan sculpture. There was only There was only 50 editions of it made. Um, it's like brass, and it's a, it's her in the soldier uniform on Khan, the horse with a Chinese imperial flag, and it's a really nicely done. I've never seen it up for sale. I've never seen it anywhere. It was made just for executives and kind of special people, VIPs, wow. when the movie came out. It even has the the release date of Milan and it was literally a gift. A lot of executives, you know, patting their backs and yeah, I was a big part of this. I was an executive producer, blah, blah, blah. And I got a lung sculpture and now sits in the bathroom. For me, it's like a special, special thing. Um,
0: I know what I want for next Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Those, um, the models behind you, so obviously this isn't great for our listeners, but you have a couple, it looks like clay models. Are those the models that they make of the animations? So the, uh, yeah. of the characters?
2: Yeah, they're called maquettes and uh, those are the original you know, production maquettes. Of, wow. You can see back those are there. pretty cool to have. Yeah. yeah. I know. I love those too. Um, Pumbaa. They're they're very fragile and uh, it's been tough to I, I've moved quite a few times and had to pack those up and uh, once or twice Pumbaa's tail has snapped off and I've had to re- you know, very carefully <laughs> cool it back on and things like that but, <laughs> but yeah those have a lot of memories because those sat on my desk
0: and do you have any advice for the best way to stand out in a creative endeavor you know everyone's always trying to kind of differentiate themselves um, how do you do, how how would you say you should do that.
2: The toughest thing for um, creatives, oftentimes, we tend to be introverts, uh, whether you're a writer or an artist or something like that. And we tend to be kind of, you know, quiet. And particularly today, I see this in my students. I teach at Azusa Pacific University. I'm a professor there. And it seems like every generation gets a little bit more into themselves and quieter. And, you know, I blame the internet and a lot of things like that. (laughs) But um, uh, we tend to be pretty introverted. And I think To stand out oftentimes is not to be so introverted. We oftentimes would like our work to be able to sell us better, but oftentimes we have to sell ourselves too in a vocal way, in a way of, you know, asking questions or making statements or sharing ideas. Um, And oftentimes we don't do that enough. We don't let people know what we want and who we are. And uh, that's the best advice that I give my students and I give my daughters, I give people that are interested is let people know who you are and what you want you'll be that amazed. sounds
0: like a tattoo that you would get on your forearm you that's pretty that impressive
2: well next time we get together i hope i see that on you
0: angela <laughs> <laughs> hey listen i i've wanted a disney animator i don't have any tattoos so but oh, if, really? i say if i if i would get one my One of my my dream is to get like a, a Lion King character, or like Scar, because Scar, I don't, I don't know why, but I love Scar, like on my forearm, and villain. that would be the only tattoo. But you
1: want the animator to draw I do. It. I, well, okay. I want
0: the but I mean, I would, uh, and, and, any, yes. Any animator. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you want custom,
2: not like a model sheet drawing that you've seen all over the internet. You want some custom- No, no, no. Looking, yeah. And then, yeah, so yeah. it has to be actually etched on your skin by the animator, too, so it has to be somebody that actually knows tattoo art.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, it could be just on a piece of paper like, oh, okay. that could be transferred by the tag. I mean, yeah. yeah, you know, it'd have to be small enough, again, to go on my forearm. So it's pretty small. But and I guess my yeah. question to Joe
2: is, do you understand why your wife uh, sees Scar as her favorite character? Does that say something about her?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Because, I, <laughs> like, it's, I, it's a more recent I, thing, too. It play is.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I just really like his design. I, I think that he his character design is really Cool. Yeah. And I like that he's real sassy, but yeah, I mean he's a terrible, terrible character. Well, get to Andreas
2: Sage. get him on your podcast, maybe
0: you'll get a drawing out of it that'll end up on oh my we'd, gosh, we'd love to on. have him on. Oh my gosh, I would love to have him on. Yeah.
1: we we'll get you out of here on on one last question. Sure. Who's the better artist? Okay. You or Tom? Oh, uh
0: okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna say me or Andreas. Uh no, um not Andreas. Um Uh, you know what, I, hands down, I think Tom is a better artist. I think he draws better. I think he, um, I, because I went through a long stage of, uh, like when we were younger, I think I was probably a little better. And, um, I went through a long stage of getting into more management and, you know, this directing thing. And it took me away from the drawing board. He kept excelling and, and growing, uh, as I was in meetings and things like that. And, I look at what he's, how he's matured as an artist. and um, it blows me away. So I could definitely say right now, Tom's the better artist.
0: Well, you can always hold being able to go to the live action premiere of Mulan over him. So yeah, and yeah. I do.
2: Sure. <laughs> There's always that. <laughs> yeah. I also, uh, I also worked on a movie with the beetle, uh, Paul McCartney. He had an animated feature that I was directing for a while until it, until it dissolved and went away. Um, but I hold that over his head too.
1: (laughs) Do you prefer directing? I was going to ask that do. I do.
2: I like directing. Um, I I guess it's the big picture thing. I just want to be part of telling kind of the whole story. And when you're an animator, you're kind of, you're you're thinking about the whole story, but you're definitely thinking about, you know, your piece of it. And that's your concentration is that small piece that you have in that character. So um, yeah, I I like directing. Um, I've done some producing recently, executive producing.
0: Um, yeah. Animal Crackers, shout out Yeah, Animal Crackers, it's on Netflix I co-directed that
2: um, But also, I, I recently I've been Animating again I, I, I still, that's that's my real passion My real love is animating I, There's something about picking up the pencil or the stylus and I worked on Space Jam 2 recently I just finished up two weekends ago And um, that's going to be out in wow. June. And I worked on Mary Poppins Returns And did some of the 2D on that Whenever there's a two D thing that comes up, I want to be a part of it. I usually try and find my way in.
1: All right, and we've mentioned the uh, the Bancroft Brothers Animation Podcast already. Yeah, um, yeah. If our listeners, if our listeners want to um, find out more from you, is there any place they can go? Anything besides like a Space Jam Two that you have coming up that you're working on? What do you want to plug? <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm on Instagram at Pumbaguy. Surprise, surprise! And Pumba has two a's <laughs> in it. Please get it right guy on Instagram and got one on Twitter. Uh, we have a Bankrupt Brothers uh, podcast um, Patreon page. And, you know, so if you're a fan of the podcast or want to be get to know us better, um, you can support us on the Patreon page. We'd love that. Um, otherwise, you know, after COVID and hoping things get better in this new year, we'll probably be at CTN Animation Expo, Lightbox. We go to a lot of the conventions and we'd love to meet you.
1: All right, well, terrific. Uh, Tony, yeah. this has been great. We really appreciate uh, you being on. Thanks again.
2: Thank, thank you, you so guys. much. Thank you. Take
1: care. All right, so we just want to thank Tony again for taking the time to talk with us. Again, just really insightful to hear like the behind the scenes, what it's like being an animator, what it's like being a director.
0: Right. I was going to say, I think the most shocking thing that he said was just how it's kind of like a yearbook, uh, going back and and watching those movies is like that. So it's kind of hard to do, do that. I never thought of it that way, but it makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. And be sure to let us know what your favorite part Of the interview was over on our Facebook page over on Enchanted Ears. All right, so Disney news this week. So Disney announced there's some changes coming to the Jungle Cruise, and this seems to be kind of in line with Disney going back through its attractions and its movies and looking at issues where they were kind of racially insensitive or not as inclusive. Uh, And so they're going to be making some changes to the Jungle Cruise as well. And at first, I was like, I'm not sure what this is about, but. You and I are kind of talking about it. And then there is a lot of, I think, problematic and kind of rough edges in, in the ride.
0: Right, right. Yeah. There's there's some things about, you know, natives and things that I think that it, it it portrays them as savages. So I'm sure that they're gonna go back through and remove some of those scenes and kind of uh you know, make them more politically correct and respectful of those cultures or just native cultures in general.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, probably like the shrunken heads, Trader Sam's, that may go away the one scene they did show and they did mention this has nothing to do with the movie so they're not adding anything at least is what they said but the skippers are going to be more involved it's going to be more of you're following a previous expedition that got lost and so there's going to be scenes of of like this the previous skippers boat with like monkeys or chimps taking over it but they did show one scene where um it's the people climbing up the pole to get away from the rhino and you know currently the kind of native guides are at the bottom and mm-hmm. the guests are at the top and so it, it again it's hasn't aged well so they're they're changing that out a little bit to make it again kind of more politically correct kind of what it should be i mean again exactly. just the commitment to like diversity and things and similar what they're doing with splash mountain so it sounds like this will be in effect this year i think they're going to be changing some scenes out adding a few things it's not as big an overhaul as Splash Mountain. So I think right. they'll be able to do it quicker.
0: I, I do think it's it's long overdue. Because when we were there in November. And I we went through that. There was something about those scenes. That did strike me as a little inappropriate. So I'm glad that they're going to fix it.
1: Yeah I think this will give them an opportunity for new jokes which will be good. I mean, they're still gonna have the jokes. It's still going to be the jungle cruise. It's still
0: going to be corny, but that's like what it's supposed to be like.
1: Right. And it gives them new material. So I think that's, I think that's all really good.
0: And also make sure you laugh at your skippers whenever you're there, because I always feel so bad when, when some of the guests don't laugh at the skippers, those jokes are corny, but they're funny. Like they're really quality dad jokes.
1: Yeah. I feel like people go on that ride.
0: I want to, I want to get mom jokes started. You know, moms can be fun too. mom jokes. Hashtag mom jokes. All
1: right. Um, But yeah, I think people go on that ride and they don't realize it's supposed to be this corny thing. Like if you're not as familiar with it, you might think that's not really that funny and you don't get it. And so you're right. If you get some of those people that aren't as familiar with the ride, it's not as a fun experience as if you have fans who know one who maybe know some of the standard jokes like the backside of water and things like that or the elephants have their trunks on, you know, some of those classic (laughs) ones. And then they laugh at that. And it does make it for a much more enjoyable experience. Exactly. The other thing I wanted to mention is the saga going on over at the Mexico Pavilion with the three caballeros attraction. So, one, this (laughs) attraction needs overhauled completely. (laughs) And I hope maybe this is a sign that they're going to do something. But the Donald Duck animatronic broke (laughs) maybe two or three weeks ago. And they just replaced it with a plant. (laughs)
0: <laughs> with like
1: maracas which was hilarious enough <laughs> and now all the animatronics are gone they just replace them with cardboard cutouts of themselves
0: what wait of of the characters of the
1: characters yeah. oh i was gonna
0: say if it was of the cast members it would be probably even funnier no
1: no it's it's, it's like it's,
0: like a fat head of the yeah, cast members no, just it's, whoever yeah. whoever has to work there for the day
1: no it's it's of the characters so yeah so it was originally a plant which i thought was hilarious to replace donald duck and now they have cutouts but it sounds like a block mickey reported on this with, with some photos. And they said they talked to cast members. And what it sounds like is the platform that the animatronics are on broke, and they're all connected. So in order to okay. fix it, they all had to go. But quite honestly, I mean, I think cardboard cutouts, I think the plant was probably an upgrade to the attraction. It made people right. want to ride it, I imagine.
0: I, I just don't understand. I'm, I'm sure right now, you know, this isn't a great financial time for Disney. but this ride just really needs shut down and they can, I mean, I don't think it's a really big ride. I don't get the impression that it occupies a huge space, but I mean, it's, there's no more perfect time to overhaul it as Coco. I mean, if we went over, if you went into the world of, um, I don't remember what it's called, like the beyond the world of the dead or whatever, that would be a spectacular ride because that is absolutely just the colors, like the vibrancy of that Mexican culture, just putting that all in there would be a fantastic ride experience. If you even, I mean, you could even make it like 3D and it make it pop. It would like miracles. Oh, beautiful.
1: Yeah, I have to imagine that this was an attraction on the plan to get an overhaul as part of Epcot's mm-hmm. overhaul. It was never announced, but I have to imagine it was probably part of some later phase. But now with everything getting cut, I don't see this getting updated anytime soon. Yeah. But, I, but I will say... Maybe they should break the animatronic every now and then because I've not <laughs> heard people talk about this attraction so much over the past couple of weeks when it was a plant. and Now it's cutouts. People are riding it. I feel like every day to see what's going to change. I, and so I, I would think too. I think this is actually helping Disney. <laughs> They what, should just break an animatronic every what now What kind
0: of plant? Like, was it a fake plant? Was it alive? It was was like it a, a It was a. It was a fern. Did it have sunglasses on? I'm picturing sunglasses. I'm pretty
1: sure it had. I, I can't remember exactly, but I feel like it did have like Donald Duck's like scarf on it, and it oh had like maracas. Like it tried. They tried to basically take Donald Duck's costume and put it on a plant it was pretty hilarious That's check out pictures if you haven't seen it they're, they're on the internet but it was pretty funny so wow I want to thank everybody again for listening this week if you're new here hey
0: welcome, yeah, welcome nice to, to see sh- you yes
1: be sure to tune in each week we have uh, interviews like we have with Tom occasionally we also talk about all things Disney from the theme parks to the movies to the TV shows so be sure to subscribe leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. we really appreciate it thanks for lending us your ears have a great week everybody and we'll see you here next Monday bye bye